from KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with Fatima Flores Lagunas, who recently represented DACA at the Supreme Court and is an outspoken proponent for a path to citizenship for undocumented youth in the United States. Here I am seeing history happen and I get to be a part of it. You know, something that I've been a part of, something that I've been advocating for for years in front of the Supreme Court, like, I remember just like looking up at the stars that night and just being like, what is life right now? Flores Lagunas discusses her life coming to Nebraska, the uncertainty of being undocumented in America, and how she's taken control by getting involved in politics and being a voice for others in her situation. Stick around for my conversation with Fatima Flores Lagunas right here on Riverside Chats. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything. How we work, how we interact, how we move around or don't, and how we deal with being caught up in that change, which is happening really fast. So to help you process it all, we have started a new podcast, a way for you to get the latest news and science on the pandemic. Because we think being informed is the best way to get through this thing. So every weekday, you will hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the virus, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. In about 10 minutes, NPR will give you what you need to know about this fast-moving story. We're calling it Coronavirus Daily. You can find new episodes right here every weekday afternoon. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Fatima Flores Lagunas, who grew up in Omaha as an undocumented immigrant and became a recipient of DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, a U.S. immigration policy allowing some individuals brought into the country as children to receive a renewable two-year period of deferred action from deportation and to become eligible for a work permit in the U.S., Eligibility for the program is strict and often stressful, as my guest discusses. Flores Lagunas has become an outspoken proponent of progress in a path to citizenship for DACA recipients, including representing Nebraska's DACA recipients at the Supreme Court. We spoke via Zoom. I mean, it's been a weird year for everybody in general, but for you, just the last couple weeks, the last month, I mean, I, I imagine it's just been incredibly intense. Uh, you said you're doing better now than you were, so that's good. Yeah. Are you feeling optimistic about things at the moment? I would say it's it's a careful balance between being optimistic but also realistic um, with what's happening. And it's just something that I feel like a lot of dreamers and especially DACA youth are used to feeling where it's like, yes, we made a temporary step in the right direction, but we know that there's still a lot of work that has to be done. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's taking what's happening today or what happened you know, last week and allowing it to feel the movement, but knowing that it doesn't stop, that we have to continue fighting. Um, as I say, la lucha sigue, the fight continues because ultimately we can't rest until we have permanent protections in place. And that didn't happen last week. It was just one step in the right direction and we have to continue fighting forward until that does happen. So it's kind of like, yay, but then also like, okay, let's keep going. Well, it, it seems like your your general demeanor, I mean, you're working for Kara Eastman, so it's just mm-hmm. like you want to take some of this into your own hands to try to enact some change where you can, right? Um, Absolutely. And so, let's, I mean, let's go all the way back to the very beginning. So I mean, where where were you born? Yeah, so I was born in La Ciudad de Mexico, Mexico, which is the capital of the country mm-hmm. um, in 1990. Okay. And what was that like? What was growing up there like? I honestly don't remember much beyond a couple of vivid memories here and there. A lot of my life began in the U.S. So I remember my family that still lives in Mexico. I have grandparents, aunts, uncles, and a few nieces or a few um, cousins that still live in Mexico. But for the most part, everything that I've ever known is in the U.S. When, uh, when did you get to the U.S.? It was 1996. I turned seven. Okay. So yeah, you were young. I mean, mm-hmm. so, I mean, what was, what were the context? What was the situation that brought you to the U S originally? I've done a lot of extensive research into it. A lot of my, my American friends, they have these entire books, right. Dedicated to their immigrant journey, whether that's from England or from Europe. And 
it details, I have a couple friends who came on the, the Mayflower, right? And I always ask myself, I'm like, why doesn't my family have that? You know, like what happened to us? What caused our family to come to the U.S.? Because there's, all, there's always a catalyst for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of extensive research, a lot of family interviews into understanding the catalyst for us. And in Mexico during the, the mid-1990s, there was a deep economic crisis that hit a lot of families. So it was the devaluation of the Mexican currency, the peso, tied to political unrest and also the implementation of NAFTA during Bill Clinton's administration. So those three factors set into motion a a life for a lot of working class, lower middle class individuals that could not support themselves. And kind of like we are right now facing, you know, the crisis with COVID, you don't know when it's going to end, right? We we hope that it's going to get better. We anticipate that we can work in the right direction, but we don't actively know when these things are going to clear up. And my family had the same, the same realization back in 1994, 1995, when this crisis really started to pick up. So they were forced with the decision of not being able to put food on the table and take care of their daughters, or possibly look towards a different option of providing a life for us. And that was the concept of the American dream. So it was very, very difficult for my parents. A lot of the anti-immigrant rhetoric um, that surrounds, you know, undocumented immigration is that, you know, a lot of this was our choice and actively it wasn't because if it would have been up to my parents, they wouldn't have left their family. You know, they, they had their parents there. They had a life and neighborhoods and and they had to uproot all of us in order to provide something better. So that economic crisis forced them to come here. And if you look at our immigrant history and the different pathways to immigration, legal immigration in the country, there are only so many ways that you can legally enter the country. And what I would consider at that point, my parents could have been considered refugees because of the, this economic crisis, they wouldn't, they didn't qualify because it doesn't exist. So they couldn't pursue any legal options. It was starved to death or look to elsewhere. And that's when they made the decision, the hard decision of leaving their family, coming to the US, just looking for work and really pursuing the American dream of providing my sister and I higher education. A journey that I think millions of people can have been a part of. There's a, a misconception around people who come to the U.S. without, you know, like, why don't you just file for citizenship? Why don't you just go through all that? But it, it sort of it ignores the urgency of a situation like this, right? Because what is the process of applying for citizenship? Why is that not, why is that not viable in a situation like this? Well, the system is backlogged. If you go into the USCIS website, which is the authority and the agency that navigates the immigration system of the country, there are cases that are backlogged 25 years. So my family would now just have had the, the opportunity to have their case heard. An entire lifetime has passed. So even with the legal avenues, the entire system is backlogged. And instead of spending money on bringing on more judges, opening up new field offices in, in these states that require more, more supervisation of different people that are petitioning for entry into the country, the administration is spending it elsewhere, <laughs> you know? So there are avenues, there are ways that we can we can overturn the system so that it expedi- expedites these different individuals, but there's no political will right now. So even if my parents would have had a legal avenue to come into the country, they would have had to have gotten behind a line, and I'm saying this in quotations, that is backlogged 25 years. And you're saying, so so if there's a situation of starvation, it's difficult to starve for 25 years and uh, survive. Right. And that economic crisis that hit Mexico during the mid-1990s didn't clear itself out for a few years. And my family was only one of millions that also were, you know, part of that mass migration. There's been different waves of, of documented and undocumented immigration to the U.S. So my story is not unique. The only difference is that I understand the political systems now, what caused us to come here, and why I'm committed to changing it, 
which is why I find myself talking with you today, right? So, so yeah, it's, and I encourage people to challenge what they think they know about immigration and just do, we have the resources that are available. You know, I've, I've known about these things since I was 11. I, once I understood what happened and what was happening, I committed myself to understanding the world that I was growing up in because I knew that I was going to find barriers. And sure enough, there are many. So they're there. It's just a matter of wanting to find out more. Well, so, okay. So when you come here, you said you were six. Right. Did you have any idea what it would be like before you came to America? No, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what was sort of the story you were being told? I mean, you said you talked about the American dream. What did that sound like to you or what were you sort of picturing? Well, I, I know of the concept of the American dream because I have close family members and, and just family friends that told us that the, the American dream was sold to people outside of the country as if you work hard, you dedicate yourself to what you're doing, you'll have opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. They presented the Statue of Liberty as a symbol of hope. And ultimately, you know, a lot of the families looked really happy, you know, um, during the 1990s, the US economy was doing pretty well, you know, so they're like, you know, let's try it out. They had, we had family friends that worked here in the service industry as meatpacking plant workers. And they said, you can, you can make $6 an hour. And everybody was like blown away by that because that was way more than that they could ever make in Mexico. So it was this idea that if, you know, you, you worked hard, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, you'd get ahead. Well, (laughs) what they don't really mention, you know, when they're selling this concept, when they're selling this idea is that it, there is that concept, the American dream, but only a few can attain it. So that's when, when I began to really realize that um, there's a lot of systemic issues, there's racism, there's misogyny, and it was just kind of like shocking. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> um, what what is happening? But there's so much love and strength and unity behind what it means to be an American, and that's what I fell in love with. Um, those sentiments, and of course, um, the the concept of upholding the Constitution which should be accessible to all. So that kind of counteracted what I knew of the country versus what I knew that it could be from a very young age. What was life like when you were 11, when you sort of decided to devote yourself to understanding all these big situations and systemic issues? It honestly came after 9-11. So in 2001, um, the September 11th attacks happened. And before then, kind of like we're facing now with COVID, there was a distinct pre and post 9-11 world. Post 9-11 world, you have the creation of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. You have the enforcement of people of color, immigrants, refugees. Um, You have a deepening of these different administrations, you know, all over the country. Field offices started opening up for immigration in every state. And the rhetoric, I I think more than anything, the rhetoric was what caught me off guard because I would watch C-SPAN from a very young age. I don't know why I would just watch C-SPAN and I found it fascinating (laughs) just to see these people in this space just kind of arguing about these different things that impacted our lives. And I remember from like, because I turned, my birthday was on September 12th, the day after the September 11th attack. So I turned 11 right after And I remember just hearing this rhetoric about, you know, illegal immigrants in quotes and how they were leeches of the system. And they were taking advantage of all of these different services and criminals and all of these different, you know, very offensive and as a kid, surprising words. And I'm like, that's not my family. We have never, ever done that and won't ever do that because that's not who we are as a unit, right? So I put it upon myself to discover why people were saying these things about myself and the people that I loved. And a lot of, and again, you can do a lot of research into it. After 9-11 is when a lot of people went into the shadows. You know, it's a very common term that people use going into the shadows, coming out of the shadows because we knew that we were being watched. And especially in Nebraska in 2006, they started initiating a lot of raids at food processing plants, um, 
tomato plants, meat packing plants, and it was scary. <laughs> um, I I was honestly concerned that one day I would come home and I wouldn't find my parents because they they would be picked up in a raid. So that's when it's just clicked in my mind. Okay, this is different. I'm different, and I need to understand what's happening and the different barriers that I'm going to face and how I can combat them. So to some extent, it was an effort to take on some power to try to take some control over a situation that must have felt insurmountably scary. Um, yeah. And I mean, at the age of 11, uh, did you find that it was, I mean, it was doable for you to understand all of that? I mean, how were you, how did you know what to look at and then what to believe? It's just, it's an age where you don't really know those <laughs> things intuitively. I honestly just started reading. I started looking into a lot of, I started with history. I was like, if there's somewhere where I have to start and I would, you know, I would sometimes like covertly ask my teachers. Um, I didn't come out about my status until after DACA was implemented. So a lot of the time it was like, if I were interested in the history of this or that, what would I look for? You know, so I started reading about the history of the U.S. and, you know, immigration and waves and patterns and the consequences, because there's always been a backlash, you know, from the from the Germans to the Czech to the Polish, you know, there's always the Irish, you know, they also face a lot of flashback when they came into the country. There's always been a wave and something that happens in response. And I saw this pattern occurring time after time after time. And I kind of found myself sitting back and like, oh my gosh, it's happening again. Um, so these are tactics that are not new. They're just reinvented and repurposed to attack a certain demographic. And we just happened to be, you know, after 2001, the rhetoric was against, you know, immigrants and a lot of people of color. So it just kind of started clicking things here and there, but it honestly just began by opening history books, reading, doing more research than what they're able and willing to do in public education. And then once the internet came along, you know, it just, it sped up after that because we had access to more information and it's something that I continued doing up until um, DACA came to be. And then that's when things really started changing for me politically. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Fatima Flores Lagunas, who recently represented DACA recipients at the Supreme Court. So before DACA was implemented, I mean, what did you or what did you foresee a future looking like? I mean, what were you planning for? What was the idea of what seemed feasible? Well, that was the difficult part where you really couldn't because we knew that we couldn't work. Um, I knew that I couldn't apply for FAFSA. I couldn't even get a driver's license because we weren't able to. So I kind of, it felt like a fishbowl, honestly, where I had like my core group of friends who I wasn't out to. Besides my family, there's nobody that I was out to at the time. Where you see them partaking in all of these events that are very, you know, um, celebratory and exciting. Like, hey, I'm gonna go get my driver's permit. I'm going to apply for FAFSA. I'm looking for schooling outside of the state. And you just kind of like, hope they don't notice that you're not saying anything. Um, you hope that they don't pick up on your silence and what it means. I knew that I always had potential because I'm smart. I knew that from the get-go, I'm creative and I'm very passionate. I've been volunteering in the community since I, as long as early as I, as I could get involved and my mom would let me go after school. So I knew that I was always supposed to do something bigger than myself, but I never saw myself actually doing it because I knew that these barriers were in place. And as a teenager, you feel like they're bigger than yourself. You feel like, ah, can I take these things on mm -hmm. when I'm only one person? Because again, at that point, it was only I knew about the other people that were undocumented. So you kind of feel self-defeating, like, is it worth it? And my mom, I would always go back home, you know, kind of like deflated after all of these things were happening. And she's like, no matter what happens, the government, these people can never take what you learn. They can never take away your education, your passion, your love, your commitment for the community. And one day it's going to pay off, Fatih. That's my nickname, Fatih. And um, sure enough, you know, here I am, 2020, and able to really commit myself to these things and making them happen, not only for myself, but for others. But um, yeah, it was pretty dark just because you don't know what's going to happen with your life. You're kind of like, at then I was just like, I'm privy to what all of these people do after DACA, after, and especially after 2006, 2007, there were, there were mass uh, protests 
you know, where the demand was immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform, and you saw hope. And that's kind of when things started picking up. But even then, you're only like, I'm only 15. I'm only 16. What am I going to do? You know, and it was just a matter of time until I, I was ready to step out of the shadows. And I never looked back since then. As soon as like Daga hit, I was just like, Whoosh. I'm doing this. I don't know where it ends. I don't know where it's taking me to, but this is what I've been waiting for my entire life. Did you find when you were looking at history and you were seeing that this is basically a cycle that continues to repeat, was that mm -hmm. something that, I mean, did that make it feel surmountable? I mean, did it give you some degree of hope that like some of those other situations, this can mm -hmm. be one of those, just like, you know, the Irish are not ostracized now, maybe that would apply to you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's also a sense of hope in that, but you also realize that it's, it's happening again, you know, right. and for every gain, there's a step back, but then you make more gains, you know, from um, the women's right to vote to the civil rights movement, the Chicano rights movement, the LGBTQIA movement, you know, of the seventies, there's always progress. It just takes people to be committed to these things. And I knew that when when the opportunity called, I would have to be ready for it. So I'm like, you know, I could have given myself up to hate. You know, there's there's a lot of people that are jaded by the world that we live in, but I always knew that I wouldn't ever succumb to that because the change that I want to create is sustainable. And even if people don't agree with me, it's like, I hope that you're helped <laughs> in one way or the other. Well, so you, I mean, you said you felt compelled to go to the constitution to understand sort of the constitutional mm -hmm. arguments related to all this. So you mm -hmm. were able to avoid becoming jaded because you believed that even using the language of America itself could be used for your argument, right? That's one of the things I love. Do you know the Frederick Douglass speech, the what's yes. the slaves? I love how he uses American language to talk about everything that he sees that's wrong with America. I mean, wh where did you get the idea to start to, to start to use a strategy like that? Well, that's the, you know, they, they call the constitution and living, a uh, living document because it hasn't be, you know, besides a few amendments here and there and, um, different interpretations, it's still the document that was created back then. Right. And the, the founding fathers and the people that wrote the constitution left it broad and open on purpose. So I was like, this makes sense. This is something that I know is powerful and it's a, it's a tool and it's also empowering to know that this document, which a lot of people value and hold, hold very, at a very high standard, it's, it's something that I can understand as well, you know, from the Bill of Rights to, to different constitutional arguments. And I was just like, okay, like, and again, you know, these, these things kind of, I knew these things, but it wasn't until they started to pick up in real life and I saw them mirror in what was happening um, that it just kind of clicked. And I want to go to law school at some point right now I'm busy saving democracy, but at some point I'd like to go to law school to understand even more because a lot of people don't know how the language of the constitution can be reinterpreted to help us today. So we do a lot of know your rights trainings for the undocumented, for Latinos and Latinas and communities of color, because despite what people say, I know that they're like, the constitution only applies to citizens. No, they, they specifically say to any person within the US and they don't ever mention something about a status or a lack of status. The only thing that they hold that privy to is certain rights. Um, being a vote, you know, running for office, all of those things. But beyond that, I'm like, hey, you know, I didn't write it. <laughs> I'm just trying to help make sense of everything, you know, within the constitutional um, paradigm. Well, so, okay. So you were in high school, you graduated high school, and then you wanted to go to law school at that point. Like, did was that still a dream or was that, okay, that was all just an uncertain future? There was, I didn't want to go to law school until after, until about 2015, we, so 2012 happened and DACA was, you know, put into motion and Nebraska and Arizona were, were the only two states that did now allow DACA recipients to apply for driver's licenses. So we worked hand in hand with different nonprofits, different social groups, um, and then of course lawyers through, they were then known as JFON, they are now known as the Immigrant Legal Center. And we presented this bill, LB623, that said, hey, the Nebraska law does not state 
to, to a specific standard, what you have to do to have paperwork besides being, um, having that paperwork, which we did with the permits. So we took that argument, we built a, an entire social media campaign, we learned how to lobby and how to testify, and we went to the state legislature and talked to all of these different senators and we're like, hey, look at, the, look at these different states, what they're doing on the constitutionality, because that's what they were arguing that, you know, because of one phrase or another, we're not applicable to getting driver's licenses. We, we presented our case and it passed overwhelmingly. And that's when I knew I was just like, you know, this is powerful stuff. Um, and now, thankfully, back then, you know, a lot of people were getting into law that are people of color, Latinos, women. And I'm like, I, I know that this is something that I want to do at some point. So I started the process for going into law school, applying, taking the LSAT. And then CARA came up. That was 2017. And here we are going on four years later. I'm talking with Fatima Flores Lagunas, DACA recipient and outspoken proponent of a path to citizenship for undocumented children brought into the United States. We'll continue the conversation after the break, right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm talking today with Fatima Flores Lagunas, DACA recipient and outspoken proponent of a path to citizenship for undocumented children brought to the United States. You went to UNO, right? So I started taking classes as soon as I graduated from college, but I couldn't afford to go regularly. Okay. Um, so I would have like tutoring jobs. I'd babysit. I'd save up as much as I could to take one class here or there um, because at the time we couldn't work legally. So, you know, painting fences, you know, it's just doing odd jobs here and there to save up for school. I'd take one or two classes, have to drop out or take a break, save up again. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I only got so far with that before I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is tiring, you know. Um, because again, DACA recipients don't qualify for state or federal aid. And around that time is when DACA passed. So there were a lot of scholarships that were opened up for DACA recipients. Um, I was lucky to be awarded a full ride scholarship based on merit. Um, I had good, I have good grades, um, very active in the community. Uh, I have passions and talents that could be further, you know, progress with with having a, a degree and I was able to graduate in um, last year, 2019. I became the first person in my family to graduate with my degree in uh, political science. And now there's more opportunities than there were, you know, in when I first graduated. And I'm very thankful because again, you know, we're, we're pretty smart kids. It's just a matter of giving us the ability and the resources to achieve our goals. Yeah, and maybe this is a good opportunity if you could just explain DACA for anyone who maybe isn't familiar with the particularities of it in the audience. Yeah, so DACA is an executive order, meaning that there is no pathway currently for DACA recipients after you qualify for the program and apply to get any other kind of status. There's a big misconception that it's something that people can just get when you have to actually apply the application process itself is pretty lengthy. You have to provide proof that you've been living in the country for as long as you claim. So on my end, I had to give transcripts of all of my education here in the US. I had to give them immunization records. You also have to show proof that you can take care of yourself, um, that you're able to work. And I sent all of that information and it came back the first time because there were two months that I didn't supply enough information <laughs> in 2013, or sorry, um, 2010, they're like, 
you need to show that you were in the country because you can't leave and then come back. You have to be in the country long term. There were two months in the summer of 2010 that they're like, you need to show proof of this. So I was just like, oh, what am I going to do? I found some pictures <laughs> that had the date on the back and I sent those in. And then after that, they gave. But yeah, that's like the amount of detail that they go into. So my my file when I sent it, it was like pretty thick and it showed like I said, all of those things, awards, different services that I've been given. I asked my teachers to give me points of references just to like double back everything so that they knew that I've been here from six. I graduated from Central. And then after that, you wait, you have to pay money to apply for, for DACA. And then the only things that you get are a permit and a social security number that specifically says on it for work authorization only. It does not give us the ability to vote. We cannot ask for any state or federal services. We also can't travel outside of the country. So they were very specific in saying that you can only work and um, pay taxes because now you're a part of, of the IRS. So then, yeah, once all of that happens, um, you submit pictures, you have to provide your fingerprints. So uh, if you have any significant misdemeanors, felonies, or have convicted any crimes, you're not going to qualify for the program. And the same happens when you renew your status. So we have to renew every year and a half. The fee is $495. And that is just for the application by itself. If you don't know how to fill out the form, then you have to hire a lawyer or find a nonprofit that will work pro bono. And um, lawyers can be kind of expensive, you know? Um, I've heard some people that have had to pay upwards of $2,000 to have somebody fill out their paperwork. So by the end, by the time everything happens, it's about $2,500 that we pay every year and a half. So, and that's all it is. Just continue to apply, make sure that um, you're doing your taxes because we can do our taxes, continue working, and then you apply again. And that's what it's been. I've been able to renew my status about three or four times now, um, basically, and again, if anything comes up when they do your, your biometrics, when they take your fingerprints, then you're kicked out of the program and you're subject to deportation. So it's really high stakes every time you reapply, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got to be, Absolutely. I mean, daunting from the very beginning and then probably never lets up, right? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, so as, as you're in that, then you're still thinking, okay, we got to get to a point where hopefully it's not that situation every year and a half forever. So what has that been like? What's that struggle been for you? the hard part is knowing that it's not permanent mm -hmm. and there's a subject that we don't often talk about and that's the mental health aspect of DACA recipients and undocumented folks that causes you a lot of stress and anxiety you know we live in the shadows not knowing what's going to happen there's never a resolution um in 2001 taking it back a little bit on September 11th is when the Gang of Eight was going to vote, um, presented the DREAM Act. They were gonna bring the DREAM Act up into votes back then, the DREAM Act of 2001. And it never got voted on because of DACA, or sorry, because of the September 11th attacks. So ever since 2001, it's always been a, you get hopeful that the DREAM Act is gonna pass, that you're gonna get closer to comprehensive immigration reform, and it doesn't happen. So you go back into a cycle of fear. What's gonna happen? Is my family gonna be targeted? Um, how am I gonna put food on the table? You know, like all of these different concepts that just kind of like continue to impact your mental health. So for me, I knew that, okay, I know I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply. As long as something doesn't happen to the program, I will get my, my permit again and I'll be able to continue working. So when 2017 happened, and Trump made good on his promise to revoke DACA, it was like, okay, <laughs> like that set to wheel into motion what happened last week with it making its way up to the Supreme Court. So it's a lot, but it's also, I know, because again, not, and again, not everybody has this knowledge. Not everybody has the background on this. It, it doesn't surprise me, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't cause some kind of stress or anxiety. How do you deal with that stress or anxiety? You want to know the, the honest truth? Yeah. <laughs> if you're comfortable. I read, I read a lot of comic books and listen to rock music. Um, I love going to concerts. I 
my dad grew up listening to the Ramones and all of these punk artists. And my mom grew up listening to um, a lot of prevalent Mexican women singers and musicians. So, and then comic books. Um, I love the X-Men because they, again, you know, they're kind of like re relevant to what has been happening during the 1970s with the gay rights movement. And I just found myself mirrored in that, you know, like when the journey of Rogue and Wolverine and Professor X and, and Magneto, I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, because they have to hide who they really are. They don't want to be found. Um, there's even, I wrote one of my last school projects in political science on the correlation between dreamers and X-Men. And honestly, I used to draw a lot I'm trying to get back into it now, you know, the campaign life is pretty stressful and time demanding, but between reading comic books, hanging out with my family, they're a big source of strength and inspiration. And then listening to rock music and going to concerts, I can, you know, I can relax. I've started going to therapy and I've been able to find practices that help ease my stress and my anxiety. But again, I've had to search for these things. One of my commitments for this coming year is to ensuring that people activists, organizers that are doing this work know that they can heal their pain and their trauma um, in a way that's healthy. I know that some, I, I get addicted to like, like coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. I know that it's not good for you. You know, sometimes I'll do some binge eating, you know, just to kind of like release attention. Um, and there are healthy options out, out there just seeking them. You find that coffee helps release tension? No, it only makes my anxiety worse, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like, you know, it kind of, it calms me before I drink way too much. And then it's just kind of like, whew, I need to take a, a, a seat back. Um, Maybe helps you focus on something, right? That's what I use it, it for. For a little bit, but then I overdo it. I take that two, three extra cups and I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I just do to myself? So, so yeah, you know, and um, too much coffee can be really bad for you. So yeah, there's, there's options out there. But for me, those were like the main three things that I focused on. I think the rock music's kind of an interesting one too, because it's, you know, like the Ramones are pretty intense, right? Is it like, you're, like you're identifying with that anger and that messiness of punk music and i i love queen as well queen the ramones um there's a lot of and again these green day you know big fan of green day i saw green day when they came to the back then known as quest center and it was just like oh my god you know it was i went with my little <laughs> sister and we were up on the barricade and there's just something about being able to release your anger and then teenage angst through a, a source and a medium that is inspiring. Mm -hmm. So I've always loved music. It's still my go-to now. I have a playlist on my Spotify that's recharge. Like I just listen to that music when things start getting stressful and I'm able to ground myself back. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you talk about, so like X-Men is something where obviously people want to relate to the characters that they read about or watch or whatever it might be. And I assume that there isn't a whole lot of material for, you know, DACA recipients specifically, it's not like that's a genre that exists. So, I mean, I mean, do you think that that in general is kind of a therapeutic thing that it's maybe harder for someone in your position to try to find art to relate to and whether it's a stress relief or just a general sort of engagement with your own identity uh, through art that exists? Yeah, absolutely. Because again, it's, I, when I first started reading X-Men and comics, I didn't know that it was, you know, suburbanly about the gay rights movement and the struggle of LGBTQ people in the country and the fight for their rights. I just knew that I clicked with it because they were hiding mm -hmm. from the government, you know, and if you, X-Men Gold is one of the newer series, it becomes a lot more political. And there's, um, in the movies when they started coming out, the franchise started coming out in 2000 and 2001, they literally have Jean Grey, you know, the movie opens up and they have Jean Grey talking about protesting against the Mutants Registration Act, which would require all mutants to register their abilities so the government could keep track of them. And that's something that was happening in real life, you know, where immigrants were being targeted because they saw them as the evil and the and all of these bad people. And I was just like, you know, my it did not take that long for my brain to connect. Okay, I don't know what's happening with this comic. I don't know what's happening with this guy with like blades coming out of his hand, but I relate to you, you know? <laughs> um, obviously, I don't have any superpowers. Obviously, I can't, you know, walk through walls or have, 
you know, um, Magneto's powers, but I knew that it meant something to me in a place where I didn't have therapy at the time, um, when I wasn't out to anybody but my family. And it just was something that I created this instant bond with. And at the time, that was enough. You know, later on, I would come to find out that I actually needed you know, mental health resources to get through my anxiety and my stress. But at the time, as a, as a teenager, you just felt represented in the world that did not represent you. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Fatima Flores Lagunas about her life as a DACA recipient in Nebraska. Well, okay, and so to get back to sort of the arc of your, your work in general, you eventually were able to testify in front of the Supreme Court, right? Um, so what I did is I did not testify. What I did is I was able to go to the Supreme Court last year in November on behalf of the ACLU of Nebraska. Um, they're one of the organizations that I've been working with for years now to pass and advance different legislation here in the state of Nebraska. And they're like, hey, Fati, this opportunity has come up. We're sending three dreamers to represent Nebraska in front of the Supreme Court. Um, we're going to pay for your airfare. We're going to pay for you to stay there. Um, and we want you to get as close as possible to the action um, because we feel like it would be beneficial to you. And I'm like, yep, sign me up. So um, what I did is I flew with two other friends to the Supreme Court. We, um, I slept outside because I was determined to get into the proceedings. Um, and the line was long. I was not, it was, I was not by myself. And that was incredible. Like everything came to a, like the circle became fulfilled because here I am, what, what 28 years old, seeing history happen and I get to be a part of it. You know, something that I'd been a part of, something that I've been advocating for for years in front of the Supreme Court. Like, I remember just like looking up at the stars that night and just being like, what is life right now? We were able to shuffle in and we listened to about 10 minutes of testimony. The Supreme Court, like you have the judges up along the front. It's a beautiful building. They didn't let us take our cell phones. We couldn't touch anything, you know, we couldn't record and we had to be very quiet. There were about five rows of people that were testifying. They had um, a curtain and the curtains were pulled aside and we were right behind there. So I had like a clear view of the justices and listened to about 10 minutes of the proceedings. And at the time um, it was the argument against DACA. So we only got to hear about 10 minutes of it um, and it wasn't, we didn't know where it started or where the argument ended, but I remember hearing, um, Justice Sotomayor's voice and I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm actually here, you know? And then we got shuffled out and we went outside of the Supreme Court and there's this mass rally happening outside that just duplicated in the number of attendees and they were shouting, home is here we're here to stay. And it just shook me down to my core, my core because they were people from all over the country. At this point, my work had only been within the state of Nebraska. So to meet people from Arizona and Washington State, California, Texas, every single New York, every single corner of the country just magnified how big this was. So it was definitely the best way that I could have summed up everything that I'd been doing. And I knew, I knew on the plane back home, I knew that I had at that point done everything within my capacity to let the justices know and let the country know that this is where we want to stay and this is where we want to continue contributing. Um, if anything else happened otherwise, of course, you know, we would have kept fighting and we still will, but I knew at that point, like I'd left it all in front of those steps. DACA is broadly popular. I mean, a path to citizenship mm -hmm. beyond that is broadly popular across political lines. What is it, in your estimation, that's keeping it from being something that's easily solvable in Congress? I think uh, there's, there's two big pieces. The first being that a lot of politicians want to tie our struggle and cause to all of these different circumstances. So we'll give you, we'll give the dreamers, we'll give the DACA recipients paperwork, but in exchange, we're going to ask for more money for the border wall. We're going to ask for more money for ICE agents. Um, we're going to ask for more of this or that. So there's always some kind of 
bargaining chip tool that they're using with our identities and with our lives. And those two things should not be connected because they're different. So I think that's one part of it. The other is at the congressional level, it's political will to making these things happen and fighting for something that's not going to have a secondary effect because that's all that's happening through the Congress right now. So a lot of us are, are thinking, and again, it's once you understand the system, if they're like, hey, we're going to request for more funds for immigration lawyers, more field offices and resources at the border to process paperwork, that would be one thing, you know, that's something that needs to happen. But to say, you know, we're going to give, you know, an already pretty, pretty heady point of, of our budget to more immigration, you know, patrol vehicles, more cameras, more funding for the wall. It just, to me, it doesn't make sense. They are permanent structures for temporary gains because all of those proposals don't give anything beyond what we have now. So the DREAM Act, the Dream and Promise Act of 2019 demonstrates that one, DACA recipients and DREAMers will have a pathway to citizenship and there won't be a punishment for other causes, which is what a lot of the administration wants right now. But you're ultimately, I assume, optimistic. And I mean, optimistic in the sense of you're going to also take on a lot of responsibility for yourself to produce some of this optimism, right? You, th- you think things will get solved in some fo- in some fashion? I definitely think it will because there's a whole generation of us that grew up in this system, in this world, and we're not going to stop until we see sustainable change. Uh, there's a lot of friends and now thankfully allies in the community that are, okay, we are here and committed to this cause at your guidance, right? There's no complex of let me save you. Like we can save ourselves. That's not the issue. It's okay. Let's get people registered to vote. Let's educate them on what's really happening, provide that information and those resources because people sometimes really don't know. And also realize that we don't have to settle for what the administration is trying to feed us. You know, that's the other part. So we're equipped, we have knowledge, we have a lot of tools, and we're, we're committed to making this change for us and our community as well, because it sets the precedent, you know, for what happens next in our country. One last question I want to ask you is we're, we're approaching the 4th of July, and we already referenced the Frederick Douglass speech. What does the 4th of July mean to you? A lot of my, my thoughts have changed since I was a kid. Because there's a struggle that you face as an immigrant where it's between assimilating into the country and maintaining your culture and not allowing social norms to overpass that. At one point in my life, I thought I thought that I had to choose between being, you know, American or Mexican, you know. And what I've realized is that I can be both. I can acculturate pick up these concepts of the American dream and what it means to be American and mesh them with who I am. Um, And that's, you know, Mexican. But again, I think the 4th of July, especially in the wake of the Black Lives Matters movement shows that there's so much work that needs to be done. Um, There is not enough justice or independence for even people within this own country. So it has definitely changed from what it used to be as a kid And I know that no matter how I celebrate, it's in service to our communities and the people that need to have their voices and their stories told. Um, I don't like fireworks personally. My mom once told me that you're literally burning your money and she is very right. (laughs) She's like, you know, why don't you go spend that money on like a book or, you know, saving up for a concert. And I'm like, you're right because literally burning our money beyond all of that, it's being with my family and understanding that, you know, our, our country is flawed, but I have hope that we're going to change it and it should be equitable and just for all. Well, I think that's a good note for us to end on. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I find you incredibly inspiring and your story really moving. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Fatima Flores Lagunas discussing her life as a DACA recipient in Nebraska and her hopes for the future. Before we leave today, though, I want to also play a clip, which is from the Frederick Douglass speech called What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? It came up a couple of times in the interview, and this is an excerpt read by James Earl Jones of the speech that was delivered in 1852 when Frederick Douglass, a man who used to be enslaved, gave a speech about his feelings, his complicated feelings regarding the holiday. 
Why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were in human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. That was James Earl Jones reading from Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. You can find the rest of the speech online pretty easily if you Google it. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukwitz. I'm Tom Noblock. Thank you for listening.